Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is August 31st, 2021, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Mill. The title of today's podcast is Doctors are doctors, so why should it be? You and I should get along so awfully. Professional weight bias in the house of medicine. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Corey. Thanks, Ken. As usual, glad to be back. Well, I don't know if you can hear the excitement in my voice, but this is going to be the first episode of season number 10 for the SGM. Ken, does one season equal one year? So does that mean you're going on 10 years of this? That is correct. And I start each season in September. So this will be kicking off season number 10. It is really hard to believe how much the SGEM has grown over the last 10 years. We now have over 63,000 subscribers. And the SGEM has been translated into four other languages. We continue to try to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media with our ultimate goal for patients to get the best care based on the best evidence. But enough banter, enough self-congratulatory patting on the back. Let's dive right in and provide the SGMers with what they came for. And that is some high quality <gasps> FOMED. So give us a case. All right, so you are working in the emergency department with the new residents, one of whom is overweight. You overhear his colleagues wonder where he went, chuckling, and one of them comments that he probably went for second breakfast. Realizing that these residents are making fun of their colleagues' weight, you decide to address the issue. And I'm glad this is uh, the case that you put forward because, you know, this is an opportunity. This is a teachable moment. You decide to address the issue, so I think that's great especially addressing it when it was actually happening. Corey, we've talked about biases many times on the SGEM. Usually when I'm saying the term bias, it's in the context of something that systematically moves us away from the quote-unquote truth. Now, science doesn't make truth claims, and I'm using that term as a shorthand for the best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around that estimate. Yeah, I think uh, using shorthand for that is definitely best. An example of a bias in the medical literature would be selection bias. This is when subjects for a research study are not randomly selected. This can skew the results and impact the conclusion. Another example would be publication bias. Studies with positive results are much more likely to be published in the literature, while those with negative results are more likely to end up in the bottom of the file drawer. And there are many other types of bias in the practice of medicine. Some of my favorite ones are anchoring bias, base rate neglect, and hindsight bias. For a description of these and many more, check out Dr. Cross Carey's list of 50 cognitive biases in medicine. And you can also click on the codex that will be in the show notes for an extensive list of different biases. This SGEM episode is going to focus on a kind of bias as defined by the common English language as a particular tendency, trend, inclination, feeling, 
or opinion, especially one that is preconceived or unreasoned. It's a sense of prejudice or stereotyping in the formation of a foregone conclusion independent of current evidence. And there are many of these types of biases in the House of Medicine, and we've discussed some of those on the SGEM. They include things like age, gender, socioeconomic status, and race. The gender pay gap is one of the topics that we've spoken most about on the SGEM. A paper by Weiler et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine 2019 showed females in academic emergency medicine were paid about $12,000 a year less than their male colleagues. The September 2021 issue of Academic Emergency Medicine is a special issue focusing on biases in emergency medicine. It includes articles on racial, ethnic, and gender disparities. One specific topic jumped out as something that has not received much attention, weight bias. There is literature on physicians' weight bias towards patients and patients' weight bias towards physicians. However, there is limited information on physician-to-physician weight bias. So, Corey, what's the clinical question we're going to try to address on today's podcast? What is the prevalence of interphysician implicit, explicit, and professional weight bias? And the reference. We're going to be talking about McLean et al., Interphysician Weight Bias, a Cross-Sectional Observational Survey Study to Guide Implicit Bias Training in the Medical Workplace in Academic Emergency Medicine, September of 2021. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? Practicing physicians and physicians in training in North America. And then they excluded those who did not consent, did not identify as physicians or physicians in training, or were not currently residing in North America. What was the intervention? Survey instruments measuring implicit weight bias, explicit weight bias, and professional weight bias. And there was no comparison in this study. How about the outcome? Descriptive analyses along with correlative models. All right, we're starting season number 10 with an SGEM hot off the press. And this means we've got the lead author on the show. Dr. Mary McLean is an assistant program director at St. John's Riverside Hospital Emergency Medicine Residency in Yonkers, New York. She is the New York ASEP liaison for the Research and Education Committee and is past all NYCEM resident education fellow. Welcome back to the SGM, Mary. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you can probably perceive in my voice how excited I am about this whole Season 10 thing, SGEM Hop, and to have you specifically back on the SGEM because you were a guest skeptic spreading some rumors with data to back up those rumors that emergency physicians were not so good at performing the HINTS exam. That's right. I think we reached a lot of folks and we started up some really productive conversations. That's that's the goal and nothing is better than that. So it felt great. Yeah, and we can do better at performing the HINTS exam. And Dr. John Peters was one of those experts that jumped into that conversation that we had after that last SGEM episode. And he's an EM doc from Ottawa and has some great videos addressing vertigo, including the HINTS exam. And I'll throw up a link in the show notes. 
Mary, can you give us a little bit more information to understand what is meant by implicit bias, explicit bias, and professional bias? Of course, I'm happy to. So implicit bias is the unconscious and often subtle type of bias that's hard to pinpoint in ourselves and it's notoriously hard to measure. Explicit bias, on the other hand, is a more outward bias that's expressed in our words or our actions. And it's easier for us to pinpoint in other people and also in ourselves. Then there's professional bias. We defined this as a reduced willingness to collaborate with, seek advice from, or foster mutually beneficial professional relationships with colleagues at work. And specifically in our case, we're talking about um, those relationships between physicians of various very, uh, body mass indices. And when we were doing the PICO, we talked about the tools used to determine Implicit, explicit, and professional bias. I wonder if you can give us a little bit more background information so we can understand these tools that were you were using to survey the cohort of physicians. Definitely. So first, there's implicit weight bias. And for implicit weight bias, we used an implicit association test, or IAT. We used Project Implicit's Weight Bias Implicit Association Test, which had previously been validated for the general population, but we knew this wasn't going to be quite as applicable to our specific study. So we adapted this IAT to meet our study's needs by adding the theme of physicians in the medical workplace. We used Project Implicit's silhouette images of people with obesity, and we asked our artists to add stethoscopes and clipboards and adjust their clothing to look like scrubs, white coats, etc. And then we purchased silhouette images of similarly dressed doctors whose weight would be described as more average or in the healthy range. Then we replaced the good and bad layperson descriptors with the words that were used to describe more good and bad doctors. And we based this on Stern's medical professionalism framework. So we'll put a figure in the show notes that was used to investigate implicit weight bias. And it is this silhouette images of both obese and average weight physicians. So what tool did you use for explicit weight bias? For explicit weight bias, we adapted the Anti-Fat Attitudes Questionnaire from Crandall 1994, which was originally validated for the general population. Um, our adaptation, again, focused on interphysician views and practices, and we tried to keep our adapted questionnaire items as similar as possible to the validated original to kind of maintain its integrity. Um, for example, only changing the word person to the word doctor and leaving the remainder of the items unchanged unless it was absolutely necessary to make a change. Also at this point, I think it's important to note that we do use the word fat as a descriptor in these items. And we recognized that this word would probably be inflammatory, but it is chosen and used with a purpose here. It's meant to evoke an emotional response from subjects. And that emotional response is actually necessary for this kind of bias research. So you asked physicians to answer 13 questions on a seven-point Likert scale from one, strongly agree, to seven, strongly disagree. We'll put a table in the show notes with the details, but 
I'm going to read off a couple of the questions that you asked them. So in this table you said, some, some of the questions being asked were, I really don't like fat physicians very much. I tend to think that physicians who are fat are a little untrustworthy. Fat physicians make me uncomfortable. As a medical professional, I feel disgusted with myself when I gain weight. So like I said, we'll put some of that in the show notes with that table, but those are just a few examples of what you guys were asking. Okay, Mary, what scale did you use to probe physicians for this professional weight bias that you wanted information on? So, and this was, this was a bit of a chore and it was really exciting to be able to do though. For professional weight bias, we developed and tested our own scale of explicit questions that applied specifically to the medical workplace and to the nuances of physician careers. Again, we asked subjects to use the same Likert scale to rate their agreement with several items. Each item was meant to capture participants' views on physicians with obesity regarding collaboration, hiring, promotion, salary, leadership opportunities, and other classic measures of professional success as determined by our group consensus within our team. Well, we will put a table of this professional weight bias questions in the show notes as well, but I'm just going to read out a few of them because they kind of made me feel a little uncomfortable. One question said, I prefer collaborating with normal weight physicians over fat physicians. Uh, Having a normal body weight as opposed to being fat should be required for any physician in order to be hired for a healthcare job. Or how about this one? Having a normal body weight as opposed to being fat should be required for any physician to be in a position of power in their career. Some uncomfortable questions there. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for that background material, Mary. Can you now read the conclusions to your study? Of course. Our findings highlight the prevalence of interphysician implicit weight bias, the strong correlations between implicit, explicit, and professional weight bias, and the potential disparities faced by physicians with obesity. And these results may be used to guide implicit bias training for a more inclusive medical workplace. Okay, Corey, let's go through the checklist for observational studies. And the answers are yes, no, or I'm unsure. So there are 11 questions. The first question is, did the study address a clearly focused issue? I put unsure on this one only because of the inherent difficulties with biases. Question two, did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? I put unsure as well. And how about the cohort? Was it recruited in an acceptable way? Yes, it was. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? I think it was. How about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Do you think the authors identified all important confounding factors? Unsure. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes. How precise are the results? The results are fairly accurate. Do you believe the results? I do. Can the results be applied to the local population? Unsure, but probably. And the 11th question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes, they do. All right, let's run through the results. Surveys were electronically sent to individuals 
of which close to 1,200 opened the document. And then about half of them participated and completed the survey. The mean age was 44 years. 58% identified as females. The mean body mass index was 26. Three quarters were Caucasian. About three quarters were emergency physicians. And about three quarters were attending emergency physicians. What was the key result? A high percentage of participants indicated implicit weight bias against other physicians, while other results suggested that some explicit and professional weight bias does exist. All right, let's go through those, uh, each of those three categories. So there was the implicit weight bias. What did they find? 87% of participants had a D score above zero, indicating implicit weight bias against other physicians. 34% demonstrated severe anti-fat weight bias and 31% moderate. And we're going to get into a deeper discussion about things like D-scores in the Talk Nerdy section. Also part of that implicit weight bias results were that males and increased age were both positively correlated with an anti-fat weight bias. How about the explicit weight bias and the professional weight bias? Ranges and means on the rating scales showed levels of variability, suggesting bias does exist. Yeah, and there was some positive correlation was seen with implicit weight bias, and we'll put those numbers in the show notes. There was a fairly high positive correlation with an R of 0.73 correlating explicit weight bias to professional weight bias. And then again, looking at male sex, it positively correlated with both explicit weight bias and professional weight bias. All right, now it's time to talk nerdy. And I love talking nerdy, but I love talking nerdy even more when we have the lead author of the publication on the episode to help us better understand the study. So Corey and I are going to ask five questions of Mary. And we're going to alternate back and forth and hopefully she's ready to explain some nerdy goodness to us. I'm ready for it. All right. So first off, correlative measurements. A lot of correlative measurements were used. Can you explain some of the differences between a D-score, an R-value, a B-value, and a beta-value? What a question. Uh, we'll start with the D-score. So the D-score is a standardized difference calculated from the IAT response time data. It ranges from negative to positive one with a zero representing neutrality. In the simplest terms, a positive D-score means that you sorted faster when pictures of physicians with obesity were paired with negative words and slower when physicians with obesity were paired with positive words. This is interpreted as representing implicit bias with a positive one indicating maximal anti-fat bias. And then the opposite is true for negative D-scores with a negative one indicating maximal anti-thin bias. Then there's the R-value. So the R-value represents strength of correlations. It also ranges from negative to positive 1, with 0 representing no association at all, with negative 1 representing maximal negative association, and then on the other side with positive 1 representing maxim maximal positive association. 
Correlations simply represent the manner and extent to which two things are related, but they don't touch at all on causality. The B and beta values do a better job of causality. The B value is the unstandardized regression coefficient, and basically it's the slope of the line between two variables that you're looking at. The B value gets at causality because in our more formal statistical models, we're specifying one or more variables as predictors and other variables as outcomes. Again, in the simplest terms, the B value can be interpreted as for every one unit change in the predictor, we can expect a B change in the outcome. And then last was the beta value, which is the standardized regression coefficient. It also ranges from negative to positive one. It's useful when you've specified multiple predictors in a model because it yields the relative effect of one predictor on an outcome compared with the others. Most plainly put, if multiple predictors are showing significant relations, but one of those has a bigger standardized coefficient compared with the others, then you can infer that that predictor has a larger relative influence on the outcome than the other predictors. Thank you. That is a great overview and I think puts a lot of those detailed numbers into some context. Question number two is about implicit association test, or the IAT. For listeners and readers unfamiliar with the IAT, can you describe it for us? Oh, this is a fun question. I am passionate about the IAT, and I envy anyone who has never taken one, because you should definitely go and take one. And you can go to the Project Implicit website to take whichever one of the IATs you're interested in. But in short, the IAT is a fast-paced word and picture sorting game that uses the time needed to sort to make inferences about implicit bias. It's based on the assumption that users will sort stimuli faster when the sorting rules are compatible with their own associations. Users are taken through several trials of sorting with different rules. One trial requires sorting bad words to the left and good words to the right. Another trial may have the user sort average weight images to the left and overweight images to the right. And then further trials flip the sides of the good and bad categories and of the average and overweight categories. But then it gets a little bit more complicated after that, and this is where it gets tough. The user has to sort good words and overweight images at the same time, say, over to the left, and then bad words and average weight images over to the right. Essentially, each permutation of category pairs is done, and then the response times are used to calculate this d-score. As an aside, one of the critiques that I hear repeatedly is that, well, you know, people are naturally faster responders or faster with the keyboard sometimes. Aren't they going to win the game and wouldn't that matter for the results? And the answer is actually no, it doesn't matter because the user's baseline speed is actually accounted for in the d-score calculation. And so for uh, some of these positive and negative words that have been historically used to describe physicians in the medical workplace, I'll put the table from the actual 
publication. So you can see some of the positive terms used like efficient, ethical, honorable, respectful, and some of the negative terms like careless, failure, lazy, or negligent. Okay, question number three, low R values. Some of your R values for correlation are fairly low. Higher numbers, values closer to one, indicate a stronger correlation. Can you explain how a low R value still indicates a positive correlation between some of your findings? That's a really good question for this study, and I'm so glad that you asked. The R values between our three scales were 0 0.24, 0 0.16, and 0 0.73. And then when we look at how our factors correlated with scale results, it's even lower than that. So in the worlds of clinical research and medical education research, our R values would be considered pretty atrocious. But here's what I learned during the course of this study. Measuring bias is a completely different ballgame. These seemingly small correlations are actually in line with past literature on the topic, and some commonly cited reasons for this are participants' psychological factors and the methodology aspects of bias measurement themselves. Our methodologist, Dr. Lee McLean, is a social sciences researcher at Arizona State University. One of her favorite things to say about this is that humans don't grow in petri dishes. And to elaborate on this, she means that research on human feelings, beliefs, and emotions is especially tricky because humans are incredibly complex and nuanced. So many different types of biases are at play as participants answer these questions. And all of this is noise that gets in the way of measuring the truth. And it's just a harsh reality that these are complex constructs with lots of noise. Yeah, and I guess maybe one way to look at it is even a small number gives you the idea that a bias exists. You're not really making conclusions as to how important that bias is or how much it affects people and their behavior, but you're, if you can reproducibly measure the same direction of the vector, then it exists. Exactly. That is so important to this study. I think also part of your explanation to question three about low R values probably relates back to us answering those quality checklists about being unsure because I went through the study and, you know, I was kind of unsure about these measurements and without having the references that you provided to me, which I will include in the show notes, on uh, prior publications talking about how these R values, while we would interpret them as, wow, that's really low, um, can have some meaning. So I really, I've learned something, as I always do doing these things. Question number four is about respondent bias. Any survey literature is limited by respondent bias. That is, when respondents know that they're being asked about, this may influence the honesty, the accuracy of their answers. How did you address this limitation, in particular when surveying for explicit and professional weight bias? Ah, uh, this ties directly into what we were getting at with the noise. And this respondent bias is actually amplified even more when you're studying sort of a closed group 
that's motivated to control the expression of their biases. And physicians are definitely one of those groups. Think of it this way. Most of us want to act like good people. And when we're rating our agreement with the statement, I prefer collaborating with normal weight physicians over fat physicians, that desire to be a good person conflicts with our desire to be honest on the survey itself. So a participant may check strongly, strongly disagree instead of a more honest, somewhat disagree. And even that small difference, like Corey said, on a Likert scale actually does matter for the study. The IAT, on the other hand, is less susceptible to respondent bias because honesty and introspection are not required for measurements on the IAT. But because our implicit measure lacks this noise and our explicit measures are susceptible to it, of course, the net effect is a decreased strength of association between those two scales. And actually, based on this, it makes sense that our explicit to professional weight bias scale association was by far the strongest of our three scale-to-scale -scale associations. But all that said, we did try to mitigate respondent bias. We masked the topic of the survey in recruiting messages and the survey intro. We said it was about bias, but we didn't specify the type. Regardless, users figure out the topic pretty much immediately on our survey. It's, it's hard to hide. In terms of timing on the survey, we considered doing the question scales first and the IAT last to try and avoid a priming effect um, from the images on the IAT. But we ultimately decided against that because we knew people would be opening the survey on their smartphone accidentally, which wouldn't work for our IAT because it requires a physical keyboard. So that's one of the reasons for the lower completion rate than we would have liked to see from the people who actually opened the survey. We wanted them to know up front that it wasn't going to work instead of getting, getting halfway through the survey and then having to give up. This is why we have one of the authors, and in this case, the lead author, on these SGEM Hop episodes, getting so much more information about the study itself. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I have to say it was largely in part of Dr. Lee McLean, who happens to be my sister and also our methodologist, that these answers sound so smart. She definitely helped me with them. So, <laughs> Nice way to give the credit there. I like it. Thanks. All right. Question number five, you used an unvalidated tool. The professional weight bias scale was developed by your team and has not been validated. How much confidence do you have in the tool and are there plans to validate it in the future? This is another great question. We are working on plans for external validity. In the meantime, one of the secondary goals of this project was to provide initial evidence for the reliability and validity of this measure, and we were able to accomplish that. The professional weight bias scale showed above adequate internal consistency with an alpha of 0.92. Uh, exploratory factor analysis suggested that the scale captured a single factor and that no items were unproductive or needed to be removed. And it did show preliminary evidence of predictive validity, evidence by significant relations with other study variables. So we do consider this work to be the initial validation for this new measure, and we have high confidence in it. 
we're very excited to be able to contribute this new tool to the field. But for external validity plans, right now what we're doing is researching the industrial and organizational psychology literature for other measures that capture coworker collegiality and collaboration. And when we find those, we'll use those to ex establish external validity. The problem is there aren't many measures capturing coworker bias as specifically as we have here with the professional weight bias scale. So while this scale is innovative, it's going to be extremely difficult to externally validate. So just a follow-up question there with regards to external validity. With the uh, cohort that you had, it was from physicians in North America. Did that include Canadians? It did, yes. Um, I, I believe that the majority of our um, of our participants were within the United States, but we had options on the survey for um, the provinces as well. Because it would be interesting to see if there's different uh, responses or results uh, from different countries, whether it is in Europe and Canada and Australia places like that where uh, weight perception may be different. And I don't know what it is, but I think it would be really interesting to find out if you're doing external validity studies to break them down by country themselves. That's so funny that you just said that because I was thinking about that earlier today and I was even thinking about just doing a subgroup analysis for Canada versus the United States and seeing if there's a big difference there. Well, is there anything else, Mary, that you'd like to talk about from your study that you think is really important for the SGEMs to know about or that we haven't asked you uh, in our nerdy questions? I think just two quick big picture things. So the first is that there's an argument from both the general population and healthcare professionals that stigmatizing obesity may actually prompt weight loss and healthier choices. However, weight stigma has actually been associated consistently in the literature with worse mental and physical health outcomes. So that's not working. And then second, and this one is also coming straight from our methodologist. From her social science research perspective, she was particularly excited about the associations we found between implicit and explicit weight biases. These types of associations have been tested in multiple studies, and they've had mixed results in the past. Some have found no association at all between implicit bias and explicit beliefs or actions, while other studies have found that they are related. This has led to some interesting debate in psychology fields about whether implicit bias can really be considered as a predictor of explicit bias and behavior. We found reasonable evidence here in this study that these relations do in fact exist. And we were able to take it one step further with the professional weight bias scale and get at participants' intentions to act on their biases in the medical workplace. For example, preferential referrals to average weight physicians over physicians with obesity. So, our methodologist and really our whole team, feel this study is an important contribution to the bias literature as well as to the EM literature. All right, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEMS conclusions. 
Ken, we agree with the author's conclusions. Corey, can you give us an SGEM bottom line? Sure can. Forms of interphysician bias exist, including implicit, explicit, and professional bias. It's important to recognize these biases and to understand how to overcome them and keep negative impacts on patient care and physician-to-physician relationships from occurring. And how are you going to resolve that case that you presented at the very start about overhearing a discussion or some comments being made about a resident? So you approach the group of residents and explain that you overheard their comments. You explain that making fun of or otherwise shaming their colleague threatens their relationships with him and could negatively impact their ability to work as a team to care effectively for the patients. And there really isn't a, quote, clinical application in the traditional sense of these forms that we use to probe the literature for its validity. So we're going to skip forward to what to tell the resident. And I actually added this because I wanted to go back to the SGM Extra episode I did on how Star Trek made me a better physician. And I would tell the resident in my best Captain Kirk voice that there's no room for bigotry in the emergency department. You can leave your weight bias at home, mister. In this ED, it doesn't matter what size, shape, color, or gender of the physicians. We all work together as a team so patients get the best care. That was my best Shatner. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and last week's winner was... And for this week, we have a two-part question to kick off season number 10. Corey, what's the question? The question is, first, how did Hippocrates define obesity, and where was the first scale developed that could accurately measure body weight to the nearest pound? I'll give you a hint and tell you that you can find both answers in the same resource. Well, if you know the answer to this two-parter Keener Contest question, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. But now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on weight bias? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGMHOP. And what questions do you have for Mary? Hopefully we can stir up as much feedback as we got about the hints exam episode. You can ask them on the blog. And the best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Don't forget, those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage to get CME credit for this podcast and article. I know that the process has changed somewhat recently. If you have any issues, please let the CME crew know and we can help you work it out. And you know, you don't need to be an AEM subscriber to get CME credits. All the SGM episodes are now available for CME credits. We have been accredited. Now, the FOMED will always be free open access. So you can have access to this oh so good foamy content. But if you want to collect those CME points, there is a small fee. But this will go and help support the SGEM. Thank you, Mary, for coming on the SGEM and talking about your hot-off-the-press publication and starting Season 10 in such a great way. It was great to have you on. Thank you so much, Ken and Corey. This has been just so exciting for our team. Shout-outs to all NYCEM, 
to Feminem and to the American Medical Women's Association for all of their support. Thank you so much. And Corey, we'll see you next time for another one of these hot off the press episodes. Looking forward to it. And to finish the show, Mary, can you give the SGEM tagline? Absolutely. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Oh,